0: Listen for a word from God in selected readings from John chapter 18 and 19. So Judas made his way there with the detachment of soldiers and with temple police provided by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were equipped with lanterns, torches and weapons. Whereupon Peter drew the sword he was wearing and struck at the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword This is the cup the Father gave me. Shall I not drink it? The troops with their commander and the Jewish police now arrested Jesus and secured him. They took him first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, the same Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be in their interest if one man died for the people. From Caiaphas, Jesus was led into the governor's headquarters. It was now early morning and the Jews themselves stayed outside the headquarters to avoid defilement so they could eat the Passover meal. Pilate summons Jesus, So you are the king of the Jews? What have you done? And Jesus answered, King is your word. My task is to bear witness to the truth. For this I was born. For this I came into the world, and all who are not deaf to truth listen to my voice. And Pilate said, What is truth? With those words he went out again and said, For my part I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at Passover. Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Not him, we want Barabbas. Now Barabbas was an insurrectionist. From that moment, Pilate tried hard to release Jesus, but the chief priests kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend to Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king is opposing Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Then at last, to satisfy them, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. We've been through a lot this last year. Even just this month, since we've begun our three-part series on practicing truth, we've seen the pandemic do its worst to date, felt the vulnerability of what we've come to take for granted and wrestled with deep and difficult questions. On Wednesday morning, perhaps you too heard a young 22-year-old woman, actually from here in the Southland, Put our times into these poetic words. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together victorious, not because we never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. Now that's the trick, isn't it? What is truth? This question brings us back to our scripture reading. There had been a palpable tension in the capital for days. People had been pouring into the city from all over the country for an event that had by now become a regular fixture in the life of the nation. On the surface, it was just like many other events that had preceded it throughout the year, part commemoration of distant and recent history, part rally that stoked resentment towards the elites perceived to be complicit in the stealing of their birthright and in keeping them in their deplorable and subservient state. But this time it felt different for three reasons. It coincided with one of the more solemn convocations that brought leaders together for a largely ceremonial but obligatory function The end of the event happened to overlap a regular assembly day, and thus it became a doubly significant occurrence, a high day, so to speak. But perhaps most significantly of all, there was widespread talk of both inauguration and insurrection in the air. The people had been flocking around Jesus even more than usual since the raising of Lazarus. The chief priests and the Pharisees had convened a meeting of the council to deliberate what to do with the emerging situation. If we let him go on like this, the whole populace will believe in him and then the Romans will come and sweep away our temple and our nation. As the high priest Caiaphas said, It is more to your interest that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should be destroyed. As a result, Jesus had to withdraw from the public square to the town of Ephraim because they were plotting to kill him. But as the Passover drew near, he traveled back to Jerusalem, entering the city the Sunday before Passover. It became a triumphal entry with people singing songs of inauguration and celebrating him as the long expected messianic king. Surely an inauguration was in the offing. But the leaders of the nation be the Herodians and Sadducees or Pharisees, suspected something else, insurrection. Aware that insurrection was a clear and present danger to the national survival under the Romans, they were determined to nip it in the bud. The fear was realistic. Less than 40 years later, their worst nightmares would be realized, for Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by sed- for sedition by the Roman army. In AD 70, the politics of the time was tough and all-pervasive. Can you sense that, in this context, Caiaphas' suggestion that it was better for one person to die than the whole nation to perish could have sounded more like sensible pragmatism rather than moral depravity? The story of Jesus cannot be extracted from its real context. That is, the context of a world torn by the cross-currents of hopes for liberation and fears of sedition, of the all-pervasive struggle between promise and reality, Light and darkness, facts and fantasy, truth and deception—not totally unlike our world. For Jesus does not float above the world; he is in the world, though not of the world. Nevertheless, Jesus and the movements surrounding him did not pass a sort of smell test. Something smelled fishy for the ruling elites. He threatened their interests. So they demanded to get rid of him. Violence briefly broke out, but they finally got him where they wanted him, before Pilate, who was the only one who could actually do what they ultimately wanted. To that end, they charged him, in addition to religious blasphemy, with political sedition. This is why Pilate asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. It's an apparently simple factual question that's more tricky than it seems. Has Pilate been put up to this so that to entrap him into sounding seditious? At first, Jesus tries to allay his fears and redirect the conversation in a different direction. But Pilate is fixated on the word king. And so finally, Jesus answers, king is your word. My task is to bear witness to the truth. For this I was born, for this I came into the world. And all who are not deaf to truth, listen to my voice. Pilate's retort, what is truth, echoes down through the centuries. What is truth? It was a question not of mere intellectual curiosity, nor grist for a theological debate. It was a question of life and death, Jesus' own life and death. Now, questions of truth usually are. They are embedded questions. What Pilate wants to know is what to do with Jesus. But right here, there is a remarkable discrepancy. For the chapter shows clearly and repeatedly that Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. By my count, Pilate goes through back to the crowd and urges the innocence of Jesus at least five times. Yet he ends up betraying this truth by handing Jesus over for crucifixion, for political expediency and personal survival. This morning I want us to think about Pilate's question. What is truth? And along with this question, we will need to ask, how can we tell the difference between truth and deception, reality and lies, good and evil, light and darkness? And why, knowing the truth, do we find it so hard to follow? The truth. Uh, We belong to a faith community that makes much of this concept. I grew up hearing the word used over and over. I can still hear my mother, and I'm not gonna talk behind her back. She's probably listening to this right now. Hi, mom. Um, talking about, my mom would talk about someone accepting the truth or rejecting the truth or joining the truth or searching for the truth. And since she's only a month away from turning 95, I think she got the style of talking probably directly from the pioneers themselves. Now be that as it may, we might say that Adventism has a thing about truth. We sort of use it as a shorthand. Sometimes we might even give the impression that we think we own it. Yet at the same time, there's a lot of confusion about truth. Sometimes it might seem to someone like an arrogant claim to know it all, to be above the ceaseless ebb and flow of competing voices. On the other hand, others get very nervous when we talk like this, suspecting the specter of relativism to rise at any moment. So let's take a few moments to attempt to sort out the various ways we use the term truth. Of course, what I'm going to share with you is just one way to do this, but hopefully it might be helpful. Absolute truth. If one believes in a classical notion of God, it comes with a handy corollary. There is such a thing as absolute truth. And we know what it is, even if we don't know all its content. It is, shall we use this term, a God's eye perspective on all of reality. Now, there is only one reality. We call it creation, made by God and therefore knowable by God. Thus, God's knowledge is absolute truth. Now, the problem arises, of course, when a mere creature professes to possess this absolute truth. This, a God's eye perspective, is something that no one but God could profess to have. We are too small. We're too limited. Even perfect, unfallen creatures could never have had this perspective. It is always arrogant overreach to claim that we can have this perspective. This is the deeper significance of the story of the Tower of Babel, attempting to reach up into the heavens, check God out, seek a God's eye perspective for oneself, so as never to be caught out again by a flood. To claim that we have absolute truth is to attempt to usurp God, the quintessential characteristic of Babylon. Now to say this, however, is not to reject another take on truth. Now we go from the top of our chart to the bottom. To accept that there is absolute truth is not to deny that there's also something that we can call personal truth, my truth, my story, my perspective on a limited range of reality. We hear a lot these days about my truth, my story, and unfortunately, a lot of religious people think it is a threat that must be opposed. They want to set up a zero sum game between my truth and absolute truth, but why? Now, of course, absolute truth includes the knowledge of all personal truths, but not vice versa. Personal truth is by definition limited, and like anything else, it is human, and therefore it could be wrong. But its great value is that it is based in our experience, and that no one can take that away from us. It has authenticity and immediacy. And this is why it's imperative that we should listen to each other's stories. We take them seriously. We try to understand the truths of another. But isn't this relativism? Uh, Yes, uh, in two ways. First, like Einstein's theory of relativity where everything else is relative to the speed of light which is a constant, so here likewise all personal truths are relative to absolute truths. God can judge the relative merits between our limited perspectives on reality, absolutely. We can't, but we can And here's the second way personal truth is relative. Make tentative and relative judgments between good and better, bad and worse. We do have our fig leaves. Now let's leave this here for now, but remember there's more to come. At a third level, we have what we can call shared truth. Our truth, our story, shared reality. Now, one of the most salient things about being human is that we are born into communities of shared meaning. In fact, we could not survive if this were not true. We are, of all the sixth-day creatures in the biblical story, the most vulnerable. We need each other. One of the most beautiful things about life that results from this is that we seek and find and create communities of shared meaning, shared stories, and shared reality. To be an American is to share a story, a shared reality, however much this appears to be under duress right now. But to be an Adventist is likewise to share a story, a shared reality. Now, of course, it's quite a shock when you discover uh, that it is possible to share some major parts of a story with another and yet vigorously differ over some of its details. This is an unsettling experience. I remember the first time that I landed up in a public school in the eighth grade in the middle of the school year as my father moved to be a conference president. And I remember that I quickly associated with uh, two other students, a Baptist, a Jehovah Witness, and often during, uh, believe it or not, often during our, our break, our recess, we would end up discussing theology and the Bible. I remember the Jehovah Witness wanted to tell me that the coming of Jesus, which he believed in, was real, uh, but it was invisible. It was spiritual, and it happened in 1914. And I knew that this was wrong. So I pulled out my proof text, Matthew 25 something, and showed him uh, where the text said, "And he will come with the clouds of heaven, and every eye will see him, and all." Were, and immediately he stopped me and said, "No, no, you don't understand. That's my proof text." What? And then he proceeded to show me that when Moses went up into Mount Sinai, he went into the clouds, that the clouds were a symbol of invisibility. My jaw dropped, and I experienced this unsettling experience that we can have profound differences even when we three kids in recess huddled together discussing the Bible. Now we try to fix this problem. Uh, is it just a lack of information? Uh, no. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Uh, No, then perhaps there's a lack of rational capacity. And if not that, obstinacy? Perhaps bad faith or even wickedness? You can see where this is heading. We either withdraw into separate spheres, pronouncing anathemas on each other, or we reach for power to coercively override the other. Tragically, the history of religion shows that this can soon lead to persecution, war, and even genocide. It is out of precisely such chaos and strife of conflicting communities of shared truths that the fourth and most sinister form of truth arises. And that is the imperial claim to truth where only insiders have the truth and outsiders have only fake news. Now in human history, we have reached for the pseudo solution again and again And the essence of the imperial move is to grant a limited measure of autonomy and say over local affairs to communities of shared meaning in exchange for their submission to the total authority of the Caesar to define truth in all matters of importance and to patrol the boundary between civilization and barbarism, reality and illusion, sense and nonsense, and what is true and what is a lie. It's a trade for peace both conceptual and literal, by submitting to an imperial stand-in for absolute truth. This is what Caesar offered, a veritable Pax Romana. One of the earliest Christian creeds, Jesus is Lord, must be understood as a counter to the claim that Caesar is Lord. But the appeal of some sort of imperial stand-in for absolute truth is deeply seductive. Later on in the 4th century, even the Christian church was seduced by this allure as an antidote to heresy, division, and alternative truths. Adventism has been rather noteworthy for calling this out, particularly its later medieval forms, as incarnations of the Babylon of John the Revelator. But we clearly need to widen our horizons. Any political, religious, or cultural entity that reaches for this imperial solution to the problems of difference drinks from the same source. In particular today, we need to recognize that all too many social movements that we call conspiracy theories or sensationalist apocalyptic end time scenarios are often attempts to reach for the mantle of this fourth form of truth claim. We know something that you don't know. We should call them what they actually are, imperial claims to truth, albeit in drag. Yeah, this is what was going on in that provincial governor's headquarters early in the third decade of the first century. Now let's come back to Jesus before Pilate. For something remarkable happens that we don't expect. Now Pilate realizes that Jesus was no ordinary insurrectionist precisely because he did not claim to be the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Saviour, the Lord, the only one with a real truth. Rather, he said something almost mind-blowingly different to Pilate. My task is to bear witness to the truth. For this I was born, for this I came into the world. Now, hang on. Uh, That's not right, is it? Uh, Jesus is the truth. He is the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. What's going on here? Now, firstly, this is not some sort of false modesty to try to stay out of trouble. For Jesus can directly challenge Pilate when he wants to, just in the next chapter. He says, surely you know, says Pilate, surely you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. You would have no authority at all over me, Jesus replies, if it had not been granted to you from above. Secondly, there's no question that John the Evangelist has become equivocal in the central theme of his gospel. That the word that was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us, and that Jesus was this word of God. So what then is going on? It's this. Jesus bears a double witness in a unique way, for what he says and how he says it are congruent with each other. Jesus does not merely claim to be the truth, but to witness or testify to the truth. Now this is firstly a speech act of radical humility, and it's been characteristic of his whole life. I cannot act by myself because I seek to do not my will, but the will of him who sent me, in John 5. Now Jesus knows that God is bigger than a mere man. But he also knows that his very very reason for being was to be God with us. In the words of a contemporary theologian, God is more than, but not other than, Emmanuel. So Jesus understood his task to be to witness to or point to the one who sent him. But secondly, and in an astonishingly non-intuitive way, this humility is also the defining characteristic of the one who sent him. Jesus not only points to the truth that is God, but embodies it. The true God that Jesus witnesses to is the one who loves in freedom. The one who is who uses that freedom to love us radically and concretely by making the journey into a far country to find us and tabernacle with us. In the depths of our messy existence, God humbles God's self so as to disclose God's self to us, to take up our lost cause and carry it through to its goal, to bring truth and reconciliation, resurrection and adoption to life. So let's come back to our chart. This is what we might want to call incarnate truth, advent, God with us. This is the inversion of and replacement for imperial truth. It claims to be a witness to the truth by being the truth embodied in the limitations of the flesh. Now it's not the absolute truth with a GPS-like precision Now remember from last week that such a map would have to be as large as the universe itself and thus useless for practical purposes. No, this witness is more like a series of waymarks, compass bearings if you please, that can guide us in our task of practicing truth. We practice truth by bearing our own little witness to the one who is the true witness to the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the one so great and so free as to be willing to use this great freedom to love even such as us, not just from afar, but up close and personal. With this gospel inversion clearly in mind, we might ask for more elaboration of this conception of truth. And in fact, John gives it to us four chapters earlier in his gospel. After washing his disciples' feet, a discussion breaks out about life and death And what is to follow? Sensing his disciples' apprehension, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus talks about going and coming again, and then in response to the total confusion of Thomas, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, John's Gospel is full of I am statements from Jesus. But I suggest that this triplet can help us interpret what we're calling the Advent truth of the Incarnation in a particularly helpful way. It's easy to overlook that when Jesus says, I am the way, it was later the same night that he had washed his disciples' feet. The ordinance of humility is not so much to be a mini-baptism as it is to be an indication of the way to practice truth. The master stoops down, takes up a towel, and in the posture of a servant, ministers to his troubled and distracted disciples. And don't forget, he washed Judas' feet as well. This is the primary gesture of the gospel. This is one of the signatures of the spirit of truth. It is often overlooked that Jesus says this in the context of one of his first disclosures to his disciples, that this way, his way, is going to go via humiliation, abuse, and apparent failure. Is it too much to suggest that there might be a parallel between John 14 and Revelation 14? Might Adventist ears hear at this point, John the Revelators, here is the patient endurance of the saint? What about the second claim to the triad, I am the truth? In John's account, the Lord's Supper is given just two explicit paragraphs right after the foot washing and just before the saying of Jesus. While the link between truth, commandments and love gets at least four chapters of the farewell discourses. These links are not merely arbitrary. For from the perspective of incarnational truth, the Eucharist or communion is not just a nice bit of religious ritual. It is another way we Practice the truth. Practicing truth means keeping the commandments of God. But Jesus himself summarizes the commandments as to love God with all our heart and your neighbor as yourself. Just a few verses before Jesus told his disciples this, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you so that you love one another. To practice open communion, as we do, is to understand this link between truth and love. It is to oppose the false imperial claim to truth. Is it too much to suggest that Adventist ears might hear at this point, John the Revelators, here are they that keep the commandments of God. And I am the life. John has Jesus saying, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The signature of incarnate truth is that it is life-affirming, life-transforming. The immediate context of the statement, I am the life, was the discourse on life and death matters in John 14. Likewise, in the context of his arraignment and trial, his conversation with Pilate was also about life and death. Ironically, his death was the way that he had to endure to get to resurrection. Not only his own, but ours as well. This is what faith in Jesus means. To practice truth means to live well. It means to trust in the faithfulness of God demonstrated and revealed in the faith of Jesus. Now, is it too much to suggest that Adventist ears might hear at this point John the Revelators, here are they that put their faith in Jesus. Okay, but how does any of this help us sort out truth from lies, good news from false views? If our earlier analysis of the different takes on truth was helpful, we can suggest the following. One, any human claim to absolute truth, be it direct or indirect, would not pass the smell test of an Advent-oriented take on truth. Particularly, uh, if you remember, and it happens to be my birthday, the happening of October 22. Of all religious communities, we were founded on a mistake and proud of it because we should be allergic to claims to absolute truth. Two, we are responsible for our own personal truth. And here we need to learn and employ the best practices of research, critical thinking, rational deliberation and judgment, responsible decision-making and thoughtful acting. And this of course is the goal of education. And if I may get in a plug here for my day job, it is also the goal of Adventist education. It is the goal of our associated institutions, La Sierra Academy and La Sierra University. Any shortcut or short circuit of the above should fail the smell test of authenticity, responsibility, and integrity. Three, we are communally accountable for our shared truth. While we must always be grateful to the tradition which nurtured our formation, we must also always be open to present truth, if we are to be true to our roots and our faith. Any attempt to stifle such accountability cannot pass the smell test Genuine honesty. Four, any tendency to turn our shared truth into an imperial claim to absolute truth must be resisted as the temptation to a new Babylonian captivity. It cannot pass the smell test of history. Five, but today we have attempted to understand Jesus' unique claim to truth. It builds on what we have already said, but it goes way beyond. In light of the one who testified to the truth by being the embodiment of truth, we have to add the following three tests. If Jesus is the way, that is the embodiment of hope, patient endurance, then we must be committed to the way of humility. Arrogant bigotry must always fail the spell test. We should seek to ask this question. Whose story is being enhanced or silenced? If Jesus is the truth, that is the embodiment of love, keeping the commandments, then we must be committed to the practice of generosity. Self-serving, self-interest always fails the smell test. And we should seek to ask whose interests are being served. If Jesus is the life, the embodiment of faith, having the faith of Jesus, then we must be committed to the abundant life, Life diminishment must always fail the smell test. We should seek to ask, is trust, freedom, life being enhanced or squelched? As Amanda Gorman put it at the end of her poem on Wednesday, there is always light if we are brave enough to see it, if we are brave enough to be it. Practicing truth, It was once said of the American Christian activist Dorothy Day that, quote, she lived as though the truth were true. She lived as though the truth were true. In the light of Jesus' life, may we seek to live this way too. Amen.